Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, or follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Now, as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, of the Irish Story website, and today we're very pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Hanley. On today's episode, we're going to talk about republicanism and crime. Brian's latest book, The Impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland, 1968-1979, Boiling Volcano, is now available in paperback from Manchester University Press. We have several episodes with Dr. Brian Hanley on our website, so if you'd like to check them out after listening to this, you can find them on irishhistoryshow.ie. But first, I'll go to John. John, can you tell us what the crime situation was like in Ireland before 1916? Well, the level of ordinary crime in Ireland was reasonably low. Like one thing that was different from the present day was there was a lot of agrarian crime. So this is basically people using intimidation, um, stealing animals, hawking animals, as it was called, injuring animals, basically in order to get land. There was an awful lot of that in the countryside. Putching the stealing was a problem kind of in the hill country, in remote areas. And that took up quite a lot of the, the RSC's time. Dublin was a city of great inequalities, and there was a lot of poor people. There was a lot of crime. There wasn't that much violent crime, though. So in the 1900s, uh, there was about 3,000 offences recorded every year. But most of them were nonviolent theft, many of them connected with drunkenness and fray, you know, fighting. There was only about two to three murders a year in Dublin that was policed by the, the Dublin Metropolitan Police. So the overall level of ordinary crime was reasonably low, quite low. There was also a category of, of political crime, of course, where like part of the RIC's function was to follow subversives or, as they were known, a spread of sedition around. They took down their speeches, people like the IRB in particular. And that was a subset. But I mean, before probably the Home Rule crisis, that wasn't a major drain on, on, on police resources either. So before the revolutionary period, I'd say Ireland was had a reasonably low level of crime. One reason for a great fall in crime, I mentioned agrarian disturbances, but those were far worse in the 19th century. And one reason for the big fall was the depopulation of much of, of rural Ireland in the 19th century. So it's much less populated than it was when there had been relatively high crime in rural areas throughout much of the 19th century. So that has changed. And that should probably inform how we talk about the police as well. So there's talk about how the RIC became domesticated and so on. But one reason for that is they had a lot less to do because there were less people around. Well, Brian, one of the things you see is that the Republican movement has to take on a policing role especially in areas where the RIC have been moved out or forced out. Yeah, I mean, I think just to uh, really back up what John was saying, I mean, Ireland was very heavily policed and had lots of space for prisoners, but had actually relatively low crime. And, you know, lots of of that crime wasn't uh, particularly violent. But what you do see in 1919, 1920, and then again during the truce period after 1922, is really crime waves by Irish standards, where you do have lots of robberies, lots of armed robberies, um, a big increase in different uh, kinds of crime, including violent crime, which occurs obviously at the same time as the revolution. Now, one thing I suppose I want to make clear from the start is that right throughout the 20th century, opponents of the Republican movement have often accused it of being a front for criminality, the British government in 1920-1921 often argued that they were dealing essentially with a law and order problem, a criminal conspiracy and so on. And right to the present day, republicanism and crime is a very controversial topic. And certainly in the modern era, 
it's one that's fraught with bias. We're lucky in terms of dealing with the revolutionary period in that we've got a huge range of primary sources from the IRA itself, their own documentation, things like the military service pensions and the Bureau of Military History and so on, which really allows us to look at attitudes to crime and what the IRA was doing to some extent from the IRA's own point of view as well. And I suppose I was kind of inspired to look at this, um, and I can't claim any great credit for originality in that John uh, had written about policing revolutionary Dublin on the Irish story. Sam McGrath, um, Kieran Murray had written on the Come Here To Me blog about different aspects of crime during the revolution as well. And I suppose when I kind of looked at it, it struck me that along with things like the Dáil Courts, uh, the International Campaign for Recognition, these aspects of revolutionary Ireland have tended to be underestimated in contrast to the IRA's armed campaign. And yet, while all that was going on, you also had a determined effort by the Republican movement to set up a police force, to bring criminals to court, to deal with crime, to clamp down on crime. And clamping down on crime became very important in terms of how the Republican movement portrayed how successful its counterstate was, because what the Republicans would have claimed by 1921 was that Ireland had faced a major rise in crime. The British authorities had either been unable or unwilling to stop that, and yet the IRA had basically ended this crime wave. Now, it's more complicated than that, but certainly it's another factor in what's going on at the time. One aspect of that, Brian, is people nowadays in academic circles tend to view this with kind of distaste you know the IRA doing things like policing land disputes and setting up arbitration and so on and people talk about the counter-revolutionary nature of the IRA but isn't it the case that many people want it or need at all times some sort of law enforcement? Yeah well firstly right up to the present day I've you know I've was in discussions with people recently and they were saying the interesting thing about Sinn Féin is that they're quite right-wing on crime and I said why is it right-wing to want people not to be in fear of criminality. You know, um, I think sometimes people have the idea that part of the revolution would have been allowing, you know, crime to flourish because, you know, there's some kind of Robin Hood idea about it. I mean, the thing is that a lot of the time people lived in fear of criminals and criminals in every era to a greater or lesser extent have to depend on a degree of intimidation, uh, if not violence, to get their way. So, there was lots of support for the IRA's crime fighting, and maybe we can talk about what that actually involved. But one thing that the Republican movement was very keen on, and this can again seem kind of counterintuitive today, is that the more praise Republicans got from their opponents in Ireland, the better it looked for them. So when, for example, in, in 1920, the Duke de Stackpool in, in County Meath, he's home, he's an Anglo-Irish landlord, his home is, is looted, and the IRA get his goods back for him. And they're absolutely delighted that he praises them. You know, the Republican movement makes a big thing about the fact that you've got people like Lord Monteagle and so on praising the Dáil courts for being very fair. In Kilkenny, again, there's a number of unionist businessmen, a couple of them ex-retired British Army officers whose homes are robbed. The IRA uh, investigate it. They find out who robbed them. They punish the criminals. They return the goods to their owners. And these guys talk about, you know, the RIC wouldn't have been able to do this, yet these Republicans can. And the Republican movement is very, very happy with that. It publicises in the Irish Bulletin and so on the praise that it's getting for maintaining law and order. So, you know, for most people, most of the time, there's a desire to be protected from criminals. Now, again, this is this can get complicated depending on who you're talking to. The label criminal itself um, can be applied for political reasons and so on. But certainly the IRA's crime-fighting efforts 
tend to get a lot of praise. There are, again, Bishop Colahan in Cork, who's a big opponent of the IRA, one of the major clerical opponents of theirs. He praises the Republican police in late 1920 for the job they're doing in terms of, of dealing with so-called ordinary crime and so on. So it's very much something the Republican movement wants to be seen to be doing something about. And it's happy to get praise from, if you say inverted commas, respectable sections of society who in, in other, in political terms, might have been opposed to them. And it's an interesting contrast when you look at the supposed forces of law and order at the time, the black and tans and the auxiliaries. Yeah, and again, I suppose one aspect of the crime in the era is that quite a bit of armed crime is carried out by members of the Crown forces who not only loot when they're going about their their normal duties, but who also occasionally rob banks and post offices or private houses themselves. And you've got a number of occasions where auxiliaries or black and tans or deserters from the British forces and during the truce, you know, members of the British forces themselves set up criminal gangs. Now, I should say that there's a context here within the United Kingdom. From 1919, there's a real fear in Britain of rising crime and of an increasing violence in that crime. And a lot of the British coverage deals with the fact that there's a belief that thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of British men have seen extreme violence during the First World War, and therefore they've become immune to the effects of violence. So there's a lot of stuff in the British press in 1919 and 1920 about the fact that gang violence is increasing, there's more and more armed robberies, and that this is put down to the fact that you've got so many war veterans um, who are, in some cases, badly damaged by combat and so on. And, and there's a real fear in Britain about this. And in Ireland, there's no doubt, again, that you do find a lot of ex-soldiers involved in different forms of crime. Now, I suppose I, we can talk about what I mean by different forms of crime, but as John said, there'd always been a tradition of agrarian violence and, and much of that was political or social in nature. But by 1920, you're seeing lots of cases where farmers are being robbed. Either their livestock is being stolen, not for reasons of protest, but is being resold, but also farmers' homes are being broken into, the farmers and their families are being held up by men and their money is being stolen. Um, and you're beginning to see quite a lot of that. Robberies of shops, both housebreaking, burglary, but also armed holdups of, of shops in Dublin and elsewhere. The British press, for example, in January 1920, the Daily Mail talks about how the fact that the violence in Ireland is not all linked to the IRA. Some of it is linked, as they say, to the strike movement, because there's obviously a lot of uh, industrial conflict. But also some of it is to do with what they term these new uh, moonlighters and criminal gangs. And they mention a few names. One is the Sons of Dawn. Another is the, the Black Hand. And you might think that it's a journalist making them up, but there were actually gangs of those names operating in Ireland um, at the time. So you do see an increase in armed crime. And part of that, of course, again, is linked to the fact that the IRA is waging a campaign against the RIC and the RIC are giving up in lots of parts uh, of the country. And in Dublin, I think as John has written about this as well, there's a kind of gradual withdrawal of the police from a lot of normal policing. So, you know, people take their opportunity where they see it and you do begin to see an increase in in ordinary crime so to speak yeah i mean studying this period i think makes you very realistic about what happens when when states collapse you know or when they they retreat and it's usually not good i would say we're going to get on to brian um the republican kind of counter state and their policing but before we do i mean we should acknowledge that ira members are also commit crimes off their own bat in the period not just political crimes but in some cases for private gain too 
Yeah, I suppose, again, one of the interesting things about the pension files in particular is that you can trace how many IRA members are both involved in policing, but also how much of that policing is investigating their own comrades. Because you come across cases in the press of bank robberies and so on, and it's very often very unclear who's done them, unless the people are caught straight away. And you begin to see then, when you look at the pension files, investigations by the IRA into, for example, in Mayo, in Charleston, there's a, there's a robbery in the spring of 1921, and about, I think, £4,000 is taken. Um, and you'll find reference in some cases to IRA units trying to um, fund arm supplies by robberies. And we can come back to that because, again, people... So as people presume that the, the IRA headquarters in Dublin is, is importing arms and giving them out, in actual fact, IRA units a lot of time had to pay for weapons and they don't have the money to pay for weapons. So one way of doing that is ultimately to take up robbery. And they're kind of reluctant to do that. And it takes a long time before they really uh, embark on it as a policy. But what you find in Charleston and Mayo, and this isn't unique, is that they rob a bank to fund arms shipments. And then they don't use the money for that. They divide it up among themselves. And then they rob another bank in the same town in the spring of 1922, I think. And this raises suspicions at headquarters level. And they investigate and they discover that a lot of their officers in the area have essentially realized that we've got the capability to rob banks. So why don't we do it? And in the spring of 1922, you see wholesale bank robberies and post office robberies um, across the 26 counties and in the the new Northern Ireland as well, to, to some extent, and all kinds of people are doing them. But certainly IRA members are involved in armed robbery at this time. And it's not clear all the time whether that is going to the IRA or whether it's going to themselves. Now, we have to kind of draw a distinction with the beginning of the Civil War period because the anti-treaty IRA makes a decision in May 1922 to rob the Bank of Ireland. Um, and to use that to fund the Republican forces. And they do that quite openly. Um, so there's a string of robberies, I think about £50,000 or more taken over a few days. And it's clear the anti-treaty IRA are doing that. And they're doing that on the basis that this is necessary to fund the uh, Republican forces. But there's all kinds of other robberies going on. And it's not clear at all who's doing them. And another thing that John has written about and, and also becomes very clear is that Lots of free state soldiers are robbing banks and post offices and they're hoping that the IRA will get the blame and sometimes they get away with it and sometimes they're allowed to get away with it as well. So you've got quite a very complicated situation and a, and a definite big rise in things like bank robberies during that, that era. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Even uh, Cosgrave's bodyguards are implicated in robberies as well, aren't they? John probably knows the exact details there, but I mean, I think certainly in Dublin, you've got whole series of robberies and you can trace this with to some extent through court cases and press reports and also things like the military service pension files who's involved and you do have the involvement of of officers and men in the free state army you do have what we might call ordinary criminals you do have members of the ira not always necessarily acting on behalf of the ira and i suppose again it, it obviously gives you a sense of how things had broken down in the midst of, of the revolution and then in the, the run-up to the, the Civil War. So, Brian, could you tell us about the Republican police and how they were organised? Yeah, I mean, during 1919, there's an awareness that there is a rise in crime and that the Republican counter-state has to have some kind of, of, of response to that. So, I mean, the obvious response would be 
for the Irish volunteers or the IRA to deal with crime. But they're a bit reluctant to do that because, one, they're supposed to be embarking now on an armed struggle against the British forces. So during 1919, in some areas, the IRA does embark on combating criminality. And sometimes that's quite low key. I mean, in some cases, it simply means that they've, you know, they return goods to a farmer who's been robbed and they they force the, the criminal to work on that man's farm for a couple of weeks or something like that. But it's very piecemeal. So ultimately, the Republican movement decides or the doll decides to establish a Republican police, which is supposed to be separate from the IRA. But initially, at least, it's nearly completely made up of IRA members. Now, again, it differs from place to place. And in Limerick, for example, you find that it's men who are considered, for whatever reason, not really to be fit for IRA service or combat who end up as Republican policemen. In other areas, it's the local IRA unit. And certainly, again, the range of things they're supposed to do might, again, surprise people. John mentioned Puccine distilling which the RIC spent a lot of time trying to suppress. Well, the IRA also spends a lot of time trying to suppress Puccine distilling. And right throughout that period, the IRA are supposed to clamp down on the illicit drink trade. They're also supposed to enforce pub licensing hours. So you do have cases where the IRA tell pubs to close at you know particular times. They're supposed to enforce school attendance. You know They're supposed to make sure kids go to school to stop poaching. In Mayo, for example, the IRA end up getting several hundred pounds from um, the local fisheries board. I'm not sure what it was called, but it was essentially because they'd stopped poaching on the rivers for a period. So they're they're doing um, really they're enforcing to a, an enormous extent the, the normal laws. But also then you've got worries within the IRA itself about maybe units spending too much time doing this type of thing. So by the summer of 1920 on Toglock. The Volunteers Journal is complaining that while these are necessary tasks, there's some areas that are spending way too much time on policing and not enough time on actually fighting the Crown forces. And that again reflects how, you know, other tensions within the movement about quiet areas and so on. The problem is, of course, for the IRA, and again, people will have very much maybe the modern idea in their heads about Republican policing here. What does the IRA do with criminals? And a lot of the time they don't do very much. I mean, the IRA is quite reluctant most of the time to take drastic action uh, against criminals. I think John Borganovo has made the point that whereas the IRA was exceptionally ruthless when dealing with suspected spies, it's not really ruthless at all when it's dealing with criminality to a great extent. So what they do is, you know, there's this idea of the, um, the unidentified location or whatever it was called, where basically... The IRA doesn't have prisons, but it establishes places where criminals are sent for a period. So remote mountainside cottages, run-down old mansions and so on. I think there's even a disused prison at one point that they use. And they keep people there for certain periods of time. Again, often not under very harsh conditions, um, probably under better conditions than a lot of people in in the normal prisons at the time. You know, I mean, there's there's an account from a young lad in Tyrone who's who is taken to an IRA prison because he's supposed to have robbed an old lady uh, of a few pounds. And he says, oh, we were given potatoes and meat and vegetables, but we had to cook it ourselves, you know, and uh, which was probably a better diet, as I say, than, than you might have got in Mount Joy. So a lot of the time, this isn't exceptionally harsh. Gurney O'Malley has a story as well about, you know, the, 
the prisoners smoking and drinking tea and chatting to their captors. Now, that's not the universal case, as we can maybe discuss. But a lot of the time, it's not really very harsh punishment. And it's not necessary in a lot of cases for the type of crime that the IRA are dealing with. Another method would be to embarrass the person. So, of course, to chain them up outside chapel gates with a sign saying that they were a criminal. To, again, make them work on farms for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And then deportation becomes a a major punishment. And that is people are forced to leave Ireland for a year or two years or five years or whatever. Now, how you police that in the longer run, I'm not entirely sure. You have a few cases of people who are sentenced to be deported for a decade. And I don't know if the IRA ever, you know, continues to maintain a an eye on whether these people come back or not. But this is another one of the punishments. So there's an attempt really to establish a police force with its own rudimentary prison system, its own set of punishments. And certainly in the way Republicans present it, this seems to work relatively well during the War of Independence itself. But there are, of course, exceptions to that, which maybe we can talk about. Yeah, just just if I can add a little bit there. I mean, in Dublin itself, uh, which I've looked at, there was a squad of about 10 or 12 full-time Republican police during the War of Independence. And uh, their prison was limited to a shed in, in Ring's End. But it was led by a guy called Sean Condren. But uh, the impression that you get is that the crime was quite serious, though, because like the DMP regular police had uh, kind of withdrawn from duties. The RAC and the artilleries were mainly involved in counterinsurgency. So what Condren says is he, they held up gangsters at gunpoint and they'd either order them into exile, as Brian says, put them on the boat to England or else, all them in this shed in Ring's End, which, if you know, Dublin is kind of at the edge of the city beside the, the port. There doesn't talk about shooting them, but uh, that, that comes a bit later, or, or, or physical intimidation comes becomes more prevalent during the truce. Brian, if I can just move on, what's the relationship of the Republican police to the dull courts? Well, in, in some cases, the criminals are tried before dull courts uh, as well. Again, there's, there's quite a, a strange overlap with the the British policing system in that you have people who are wanted by the IRA for crimes who end up being captured by the police and tried in the the state courts, so to speak, or vice versa. And in some cases, the IRA feel that they've got off lightly, so they re-arrest them. Um, I have to say as well that in some IRA units, there's a feeling that this is a, a big diversion from their central task. So I think a, one IRA officer in North County Dublin talks about how prisoners were always a nuisance. And at one point, there was a raid on their prison and the men there were taken away by the auxiliaries and, and the IRA were actually delighted to just get them off their hands because, you know, you've got accounts from coming among women of having to cook again for prisoners and their guards and so on. So, But some people are brought before the courts. A lot of the time they're, they're tried by the IRA itself, I get the impression. And certainly where there's a major case with a high profile involving, you know, again, people with some kind of status there is an effort to show that this is going through the motions of justice and that there's a an effort to really you know promote what the IRA are doing or the Republican police are doing and I suppose the standout example in that and one that gets a lot of national attention and the Republican movement publicizes a lot is a big robbery in North County Cork in 1919 in Mill Street where around 18,000 pounds is taken from some bank officials and Again, we have to take into account that the British government 
will use any opportunity to smear the IRA as criminals. So they very often accuse the IRA of, of robberies and so on. The IRA are keen to show that it's not them. In Mill Street, a local group of criminals rob this money. And the IRA investigate it. They find out there's plans to rob other banks. They guard those banks. They recover about £10,000 and they give it back to the Allied Irish Bank, I think, was the one that was robbed. They also receive a reward for handing that money back. And they arrest and deport most members of the gang who are involved. And I suppose this is one of the cases that's a little bit exceptional because the publicity at the time is about how successful this has been and also about the plaudits that the IRA is getting for solving this crime. But the leader of the gang, a guy called Daniel Buckley, who was an ex-soldier and also a publican, he comes back despite being deported by the IRA to the area. And publicly, what the Republican movement says is that he's been re-deported. But in actuality, he was shot by the IRA. And as it transpires, he had quite a bit of support locally. Um, the men that he was involved with had a lot of relatives in the area because they were from there. And they resented the IRA. And Buckley was prepared to put up a bit of a fight. And as a result, the IRA made the decision to kill him, which is quite unusual in terms of how they dealt with crime in that era. But also, again, reflects, of course, that in certain circumstances, criminals are not unpopular. They can have a local basis. And John, you're talking about Dublin again. The IRA do clamp down on gangs in Dublin. Again, I mentioned the Sons of Dawn, uh, which Sam McGrath has written about um, on, on Come Here to Me, um, who are a, a gang who are carrying out robberies, essentially, of shops and department stores. And the IRA does consider in those cases using flogging. Now, some officers say that this is wrong and it's counterproductive. And others say that really this is the only way to get these people to listen to you. If the criminals are particularly violent or if they put up a fight, then the IRA reacts a little bit more brutally. But you don't get the sense, and I suppose this is where, again, the, the modern listener will, will be kind of comparing it to today. The IRA isn't kneecapping lots of people. You know, they're not carrying out lots of punishment beatings of, of suspected criminals, at least. A lot of the time, they don't seem to need to do that. Well, how strict was the Dolls Department of Home Affairs, the equivalent of the modern-day Department of Justice, in trying to enforce a uniformity in how the Republican police acted throughout the country, rather than local areas running things the way they saw fit? Not really until the truce period, and even then it's quite patchy, because as you can imagine, the theory is grand that you set up this police force and that the doll courts will you know, function and so on. In reality, that depends on the level of control Republicans have in certain areas. It depends on what the Crown forces are doing. It depends on whether people are active in other areas. So it isn't until November 1921 that there is a serious attempt to establish the Republican police as a nationwide force. And again, from area to area, the problems that arise are quite different. The crimes that happen can be different as well. We can maybe speak about the need for respectability or social control or so on that, that's involved in the period. Um, and also, again, the, the IRA is faced with the problem of, of, of emulation, that a lot of criminals realise that the IRA carries a lot of weight and a lot of threat. So you do have criminals who carry out robberies and so on and who pretend to be the IRA. And that, again, is a problem in terms of how the IRA catches these people or how it protects its own good name as this would have seen it. 
there's a, a theory and a plan, all right, but it isn't always put into practice very effectively. The doll courts were, first of all, uh, arbitration courts. They were voluntary and they were supposed to be for settling local disputes. And then in the summer of 1920, uh, there's a decision made that they're going to be civil criminal courts where they're going to be enforcing the verdicts. At this point, they're basically suppressed by the, by the British. And lots of people who sit on doll courts uh, are arrested and put in jail, including people like Patrick Hogan, who goes on to be a very conservative minister agriculture in the free state government and so on but like you know the a lot of lawyers judges and so on in the dull courts are arrested they're they're kind of suppressed but they re-emerge during the truce so the truce period when they're kind of tolerated as long as they say they're national arbitration courts and not criminal courts they're, at that point they're actually competing directly and there's cases where the irp the republican police arrest people then they get arrested for false imprisonment by the rac it's, it's weird it's a weird situation in the truce where there's two rival court and police systems kind of competing and there's also this odd situation during the truce whereby the IRA and the British forces occasionally cooperate in certain incidents where, I mean, in Tipperary, somebody steals a car from the Black and Tans and the IRA return it to them. The Irish Bulletin talks about how this shows the, the Republican police are absolutely fair and how they deal with people. In Smithfield in Dublin, again, John, you, you've mentioned this, but, you know, the Republican police order rioters at gunpoint to stop throwing stones at British soldiers. They track down a sniper in Dublin who's firing at British troops and arrest him and deport him because it happens during the, the truce period. So there's, then they also capture British army deserters who are involved in criminality and hand them over to the British authorities who then court-martial them. So this is going on as well post the War of Independence. Well, Brian, you mentioned there earlier about pot chain making. Was there any other areas that could be regarded as morality or voice issues that the Republican police got involved in? I suppose there's an interesting issue in that from 1919 onwards, you see a lot of complaints in the local press about tramps and also about tinkers. And Aoife Brannock has made the point in her book on the history of Irish travellers that they don't quite explain the categories of these people um, some of these people are what we now call today travellers. Um, some of them are down and outs and so on. The terms can be used interchangeably at the time. But certainly you see lots of complaints in the local press about tramps or about tinkers and about public order, about fighting, about drinking and so on. And the Republican police gets a lot of praise from the local newspapers in the summer of 1920 for clamping down very hard on tramps and tinkers. Now, to what extent that involves just prejudice? Because again, when you discuss crime, you can't divorce it from the fact that people's um, perceptions of crimes are often wrapped up in social prejudice about people from certain backgrounds and so on, or that people from, from different backgrounds are, are usually arrested far more and jailed far more than others. But certainly in the spring, summer of 1920, the Republican police clears tramps away from fairs, for example. You see this breaks up fights involving tinkers and so on. And ultimately, in the, in the spring of 1921, there's a general order in the 2nd Southern Division, which is, covers part of Munster and also part of Kilkenny as well, I think, that tramps and tinkers are actually banned from that divisional area. Now, how you would enforce that, of course, would mean simply driving every person of that description out of that area. Um, and there's a discussion within the IRA about whether this should be applied nationally. Now, again, you have another complicating factor in that the IRA was very suspicious that the British were using the so-called tramp class 
you know, as spies and so on. But certainly there, I think you see a desire for respectability uh, on behalf of the IRA. I mean, this is something that the police would have done anyway. And they don't seem to have had a problem with that type of policing, which is people who are regarded as undesirables by mainstream society are also regarded as undesirable by the IRA to, to some extent. Now, moving on, you know, chronologically, you've got the treaty signed in December 1921. You've a provisional government set up in, in the 26 counties and also Northern Ireland. But if we see kind of a collapse of law and order during the War of Independence, for my money, it's 10 times worse during this period between the treaty when the British state starts to depart and the kind of the start of the Civil War. Would, would you go along with that, Brian? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, there's, if you can talk about a couple of crime waves, there's one in 1919, into early 1920, and again, then in the truce period, there's a big rise. Um, again, if you, if you look at any newspaper on any day in January or February 1922, you'll see loads of examples of where the IRA or the Republican police are guarding banks, are investigating robberies of farmers, robberies of shops, intimidation, robberies of cars. There's a big, big rise in all kinds of crime in that period. And again, I suppose it, it indicates that there's a sense that things have broken down a bit and nobody's sure what's going to happen next. Yeah, I mean, it's a really anarchic period. You see, like, British Army, first of all, uh, withdraws from most of their bases. Then, you know, the police are disbanded, although not, not formally till August, but really they're disbanded earlier. You know, they're, they're not around. There's, there's kind of free for all. Plus... You have a split in the IRA. So and this, for, for my money, also uh, encourages a lot of crime. Yeah, it does. And again, as well, we have to be careful that both sides in that split are accusing the other of being responsible for some of these robberies and so on. So the Free State is very keen to say that the anti-treatyites are basically criminals and are robbing banks and post offices for their own benefit. As I said, the anti-treaty IRA does make a decision in the spring of 1922 to rob banks. Now, again, this is an area, I suppose, that needs more investigation because I don't think during the War of Independence there was a general policy of IRA fundraising by bank robbery. I think local units started to do it because they needed money for arms, but it takes them a while to really begin doing that. In other cases, individual IRA members also rob banks and stuff, but that was without authorization. The anti-treatyites do endorse a certain amount of bank robberies to fund themselves, but at the same time, there's all kinds of other robberies and crime going on, and some of that involves people on the pro-treaty side. So in, in Longford, I think around March 1922, a Republican policeman is shot dead during a raid in Lanesborough, I think. And the raiders get away with a few thousand pounds and they're captured in Roscommon and they're all free state soldiers. They're put in jail and then they're released at the start of the Civil War and they, they stay in the free state army and then they don't seem to suffer any consequences because they'd shot a Republican policeman, you know, a few months before the Civil War started. So this is a really confusing period and it does indicate that there's lots of people with access to guns and lots of people with money problems, probably a lot of people quite poor, and there's opportunities. And again, the, the pension files are really good here, I think, because they weren't meant to be really read by the likes of us. Um, and it does indicate the extent to which people on both sides we're grappling with the fact that, you know, there's a big upsurge in, in this kind of, of criminality. And you still also have, even though the, the auxiliaries and so on are going, there's still quite a few British servicemen who decide 
to rob a few banks before they go back to Britain, you know, and, and some of them must have gotten away with it. A few of them were caught. Yeah, and, and one thing probably won't be popular for bringing up, but I think it is it, it is a factor is that this is a period where the conflict in Northern Ireland is, is really intense. And for my money, it's a, it, there's an upsurge in sectarian feeling across the island. And there is occasions where crime crosses over into sectarian kind of animosity in the south, for my money. Would you go along with that, Brian? Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I think it's it's unquestionable that one impact of the violence against Catholics in the north was for people in the 26 counties to try and retaliate by attacking local Protestants or, or Unionists. And that happens in different places to a different, uh, greater or lesser extent. But also then, of course, you know, you've got a situation where Protestants are overrepresented among business people, among shop owners, among large landowners and so on. So what comes first, the desire to rob or the desire to target because of religion? It's difficult to tell. And again, to be fair, both the pro-treaty and anti-treaty IRA at various stages defend people from uh, attack too. But it is a factor. I mean, in West Cork, you have a situation before the truce, I think, where Protestants are being robbed, Protestant farmers are being robbed by a gang who tell them they're the IRA and tell them that if they complain, they'll be shot. And eventually one of them does complain to the IRA and the IRA investigates and they find that the raiders are members of the IRA, but they're not acting under authorization. Now, the report just says these men were punished. I don't know what the punishment was. But of course, in a situation, you know, in the spring of 1922, if somebody comes to your house with a gun and says they're the IRA, that's going to carry a lot of weight. So how we untangle what's going on is is quite difficult. We can do it to some extent, but I suppose what you do see certainly, and I suppose again, when we, we look at it retrospectively, there's far more crime in 1922-23 than there is in 1933 or 1943. So it really is a period that's exceptional in terms of, of, of the state's history. Without kind of wanting to impose my, my interpretation of it, what I think is that, you know, the sectarian thing is much more explained by this period of kind of anarchy um, after the treaty than it is by like, you know, the idea of a, a vendetta or something against Southern Protestants. Like, I think there is a question, but much more explained by the collapse of state power than, you know, some sort of policy on behalf of Republicans, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're 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 probably correct on that. Now, John, could you talk about the response of the Free State government to crime in this period and bodies such as the CID? Yeah, the CID is an interesting one. The CID is the Criminal Investigation Department, and um, it's set up very early in 1922, actually, before the, the formal split in the, in the IRA, uh, because there's been such an upsurge in, in armed crime in the Dublin area in particular. And uh, Collins, Michael Collins, who's the head of the provisional government, of course, is very scathing about the Republican police. He calls them a dreadful lot, and he says they're very inefficient and so on. You know, him and Mulcahy are really quite scathing about them. But what they do with the CID is they get mostly ex-IRA men. There's actually one or two ex-DMP, Dublin Metropolitan Police, in there too. But mostly ex-IRA, quite a few from Collins Intelligence Department. So it's headed up by Liam Tobin and Charlie Dalton originally. First, people like Ned Roy, who's an ex-DMP detective, is in there. And there's also David Nelligan, who's also a former DMP detective, who were in there at the start. And they're not at all like what you'd expect from a civil police, like say the Garda became, they're much more kind of, a bit, they're quite like the auxiliaries, you know, to be honest, they're motorized, they're well-armed, mostly ex-IRA, and a lot of them admit that they didn't know much about policing. So Ernie O'Malley, who's on the other side of the civil war, but he describes them as men who were not much good at intelligence, but good with their guns. 
And so the CID becomes a kind of a tool of, of counterinsurgency in the Civil War. But before that, and, and kind of parallel with that, their job is dealing with armed crime. They end up dealing with all sorts of crime. Like, for example, there's a case in a Dublin tenement just before the start of the Civil War in June 1922, where there's really a domestic altercation between a man who's uh, under the influence of alcohol, he's an ex-soldier, and, you know, the police are called. Now, the DMP are, are not in good shape at the time. So the people who arrive are the CID, who were these armed kind of militiamen. And uh, while they're trying to restrain the guy, they just basically take out their revolvers and shoot him. Because, you know, they're guys with no police training, and this is what you do in a violent situation if you're a, an undercover guerrilla operative. So the, the CID, which is expanded in the Civil War, and eventually kind of it gets ancillary branches called the Citizens Defence Force and Protective Corps and stuff, and in the, by the end of the Civil War, it's about 750 strong, but the CID proper, based in Oriel House, is about 250 armed detectives. And they're a very blunt instrument, really, in dealing with, uh, first of all, armed crime, and then armed insurgency as well. Brian, could you talk about the IRA in Britain and their relationship to crime? Yeah, well, I think it's 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 quite a different situation, obviously, outside Ireland, and the IRA in Britain um, aren't concerned about respectability uh, uh, to the same extent as the IRA in Ireland and they aren't involved in policing and so on. And one of their tasks is to get weapons to Ireland. And to do that, you have to smuggle the weapons and you have to get them through ports. And there's a degree of smuggling, criminal networks and so on, where the IRA does find in Britain that whether it likes it or not, it's got to interact with criminals. So again, there's some evidence of the IRA in, in the Newcastle area and in Birmingham and so on, interacting with the underworld in terms of buying weapons, moving weapons and so on. And in London as well, there's a little bit of evidence about how they dealt with criminals in the East End of London um, who introduced them to sailors and so on who were prepared to sell weapons. You've got gangs like the, the Titanics, uh, the Sabinis and so on, who people may be a bit familiar with from the way they're presented in, in Peaky Blinders. But to a surprising extent, Peaky Blinders, and I don't know if they did, how much research they did, but there is an element of IRA interaction with British criminal gangs in that period through necessity in a way that wouldn't have occurred in Ireland itself. And you didn't have the, the same level of gang organisation anyway. But but it does happen outside Ireland. It'd be interesting to see in terms of smuggling from the United States and so on as well, if there was any uh, crossover with with criminal organisations there. Because once, and this is a, something that goes on well into the 21st century, there's really no clean way of international smuggling and so on. You constantly cross paths with all kinds of people if you're involved in that type of business. So the IRA in Britain, also based as they were in British cities, were going to have to interact with, with criminals in a way that in Ireland certainly would have been avoided to a great extent. Well, Brian, when do we start to see this crime wave, especially armed crime, start to go down after the Civil War? Well, I suppose, yeah, it is after the Civil War, but but a while after. So during the Civil War itself, robberies continue. And again, there's there's quite an overlap and sometimes very confusing kind of circumstances. For example, during the summer of 1922, the anti-treaty IRA carry out some attacks in Monaghan Town and a free state officer is killed. During those attacks, two banks are also robbed. And you might assume that this was really part of the anti-treaty IRA's strategy on the day. But then you find that the anti-treaty IRA's leadership asks, why were the banks robbed? 
that, that hadn't been authorized. Uh, you've got to give the money back. And very little of the money is handed back. And some of the IRA men responsible then abscond and leave Ireland with the money. So there's, during the civil war itself, continuing robberies. And in Sligo, for example, you've got a gang in the, the mountains there, uh, the Ox Mountains, I think, who are wanted by both the pro-treatyites and the anti-treatyites and who explain their their motivation is basically that they're starving and they need money. So the civil war itself sees quite a lot of, of armed crime. And indeed, the civil, the free state government execute 81 people during the civil war. And Republicans uh, very often talk about the 77. And that's because some of the men who were executed, in one case in Mullingar, two young IRA men were executed uh, for armed robbery, but those robberies hadn't been authorised by the IRA, so the IRA doesn't put them on the roll of honour. In another case, however, in Offaly, three young IRA members were executed. Now it transpires that they'd been suspended from the IRA for involvement in armed robberies, but their local OC, Sean McGuinness, felt that that paled in significance in comparison to the the way they were treated by the Free State. So their names are on the Roll of Honour. And then a couple of guys in Tume, I think, are executed just at the end of the Civil War for robbery, but are not claimed by the IRA either. So again, the the consequences of being involved in armed robbery are obviously quite serious during the Civil War. And also afterwards, because once the Civil War is over, the IRA dump arms and so on. But in some parts of the country, particularly the West, um, IRA units either want to fight on and continue operations, or you also have people who carry on uh, robberies. And also then in in Dublin, I think it's a couple of years before the level of armed robbery falls very drastically. And you've got cases where um, a Garda detective is shot dead during an armed robbery. The men who carried out the robbery are captured. This is uh, just outside Dublin. And they turn out to be Free State Army officers. And one of them is hanged. Uh, for uh, killing the Garda. And you've got a whole range of cases where soldiers are involved. I think, again, you've got maybe nearly a thousand Free State soldiers convicted of involvement in some form of criminality in the aftermath of the Civil War. You've got people who are on the fringes of the IRA who are, you know, refusing to to dump their weapons and are continuing on activities. And as late as, I think, 1927 in Leitrim, an armed raider is shot dead by Gardaí his group had carried out a whole series of raids. Now, when he's shot dead, I think in Balnamore, the IRA make clear that he's not a member of theirs, despite the fact that the government had labelled him an irregular, and that the IRA have not carried out robbery since 1923. And certainly by the 1930s, as far as I can see, the IRA as an organisation no longer have a policy of funding themselves by armed robbery. They really do stop in the years after the Civil War. And you do begin to see a decline then in armed crime and armed violence more generally by the late 1920s, certainly. The Civil War period was was quite exceptional in many ways. But again, when, when you're examining these, these different cases, you can see the different categories of people who are involved and the way that they can't simply be put into um, a very easily, you know, judged kind of label. Particularly, you know, the likes of Kevin O'Higgins, who is effectively the Minister for Justice in our terms, the Minister for Home Affairs, characterizes the whole civil war as, you know, battle for order against armed crime. Mm-hmm. But now that's, you know, that's obviously a partisan interpretation, Brian. Yeah. I mean, the, the free state kind of argument that irregularism is just all about armed crime is obviously propaganda. When you look at Garda files and you look at, at press reports that blame 
in inverted commas, the irregulars for all these activities. That's That has to be taken with, with a very large grain of salt. Free state soldiers themselves, all kinds of people are involved in armed crime at the time. And it's an effort to try and depoliticize and criminalize the anti-treatyites. And that's absolutely wrong. Um, the fact that some mainstream historians have gone along with big parts of that is also obviously wrong as well. But certainly at the time, there are people on all sides and none who take advantage of the situation to rob banks. Yeah, I mean, Richard Mulcahy, for one, is quite clear. He says in the to the Army Inquiry in 1924 that, you know, every criminally disposed person had a gun. And he said, because we were better payers than Mr. De Valera, more of them were on our side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, after the Civil War, I mean, we mentioned the CID a minute ago. Independent Ireland is not really a heavily a place with a heavily armed police force. Um, a lot of prisons are closed down and crime actually drops quite significantly. Uh, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, it's quite an interesting question. And I suppose my, I'd be weak on, on the theories of crime and, and, and in, in terms of sociology. I mean, people argue a very homogenous society, um, still very devoutly Catholic society with a great degree of social control. So following a revolution and civil war, you really have... Uh, period of calm essentially where by the 1930s people are beginning to accept the state and are quite regimented in many ways now again those who are looking at the experience of people in Magdalen laundries and industrial schools you know you can see quite clearly that certain parts of the population are policed far more harshly um, and that there's a level of for example of guarded brutality that would be tolerated in the 1930s and 40s that wouldn't be acceptable now you've got you know People still are arrested, people are still jailed, people still go to prison. But there is definitely a big, big drop in in armed crime, Um, despite the fact that the 30s are also quite violent politically in terms of clashes between the IRA and the blue shirts and so on. But that generally doesn't involve guns. It does sometimes, um, but a lot of the time it doesn't. And as I've said, the IRA does make a decision, and I I think it seems to, to bear up, that they don't carry out armed robberies from the mid-20s until um, the 40s. I mean, w- one kind of legacy thing is that quite a few, like, again, I talked about the CID, but they're disbanded. I mean, in the days of De Valera, uh, quite a few ex-IRA people are actually recruited into the guards as armed detectives. Yeah, one group that hasn't been written about, I suppose, academically in many ways are the, the so-called Broy Harriers. And people know who they are. They're the the people who are brought in under De Valera to augment the special branch and to really be the loyal, the loyal special branch for the Fianna Fáil government. And then they become involved in, in kind of firstly big clashes with the blue shirts, but also then with the IRA itself. But again, with the pension files, you can trace to some extent the IRA veterans who do become Gardaí. And a lot of them are in the IRA until quite late. They don't leave the IRAs in some cases until, until the early 30s. But some of them, again, are people who've obviously Civil War veterans and so on. One of the most famous would have been Dennis O'Brien, who, who shot dead by the IRA, ironically, um, in 1942. Sorry, Brian, in my hometown of Rathfarnham, he was killed. Yeah, and he was a veteran of the Easter Rising of the War of Independence and the Civil War and would have been a hardline anti-treatyite, but becomes a guard detective under De Valera. But I suppose, again, this is one of the questions about what happens after revolutions and what happens when states become legitimate and at what point people accept that 
within revolutionary organizations because I suppose one thing that's also true by the late 1930s is that the number of people still involved in the IRA who were veterans of the revolutionary period is very small. Simply in terms of age, most IRA members by the late 1930s were far too young to have been around uh, between 1916 and 1923. Uh, whereas in the state forces, you would still have had a lot of people in the higher ranks of the Guardi and the, the army who would have been veterans of the revolutionary period. And obviously in politics, there's lots of them too. But you're talking about, to some extent, a different group of people. Brian, uh, there's a, I've heard a theory floated by, by relatives of mine that there was no armed crime uh, in Ireland until the Troubles when the, the provisional IRA basically caused a, a new generation of crime in Ireland. Now, again, that's political interpretation, but what's the relationship between, you know, armed crime in Ireland post, say, 1940s and general crime? Well, there was still armed crime in the 1940s that didn't involve the IRA, but sometimes did involve veterans of the revolutionary period who, who needed money and who, who carried out robberies. But there was very little. And in the 1940s, the IRA North and South do, in terms of desperation, really return to a policy of bank robbery, which proves to be quite disastrous. And in the aftermath of the war period, essentially, the IRA makes a decision both to rule out armed activity in the South, but also not to embark on, on armed fundraising. And you do see relatively little armed crime. Um, there's there's some there's some famous incidences in Dublin in the late 40s, for example, and one in Henrietta Street. They were Irish, but they'd served in the British military who are carrying out raids in Dublin or eventually tracked down. I've forgotten the name of the guy involved, but I mean it's it's quite a cause celebre at the time. But but there is relatively little. But but by the 1960s, you are beginning to see a phenomenon which is common across the Western world of the involvement of young people in certain times of disorder clashes, stabbings, fights, and so on, and also a rise in housebreaking and burglary. And again, people relate this to consumerism, uh, industrialization, urbanization, a decline in respect for authority, and so on. But the immediate upsurge in bank robberies and armed crime is linked, I think, to the Northern conflict initially, because the IRA itself, up till the late 60s, doesn't carry out armed robberies. And there's actually internal debates about whether they should or not. They're quite worried about their their image and the fact that it reflected badly on them in the 40s. But a group of what would now be called dissidents who ultimately um, adopt the name Sarera start carrying out armed robberies in Dublin in the late 60s. And these are quite remarkable at the time. People aren't used to them at all. And by 1970-71, as the IRA splits and as the Northern conflict starts to blow up, both the officials and the provisionals at different stages begin to carry out robberies north and south. Now, from quite early on, other criminals begin to emulate them. But I think certainly there is a link to the violence of the north and the way that crime begins to develop quite rapidly. Armed crime begins to develop quite rapidly in the early 70s. But other forms of crime were increasing anyway, I think. And Brian, I guess in, in conclusion, is it fair to say that underground movements that seek to to seek to start states or to transform states are always going to have to get involved in, in law enforcement of some kind. Yeah, I think in terms of any revolutionary movement or movements that are seeking to establish a state or a republic or whatever, the fact is that people do have a genuine desire to be free of crime. Communities do fear criminals and criminality. Um, and I think that one of the 
biggest issues in in modern Irish history since the 1980s has been, for example, the impact that that heroin had on Dublin as a city and then more generally on Irish society. And that's a huge issue, which doesn't really hasn't really been grappled with by historians at all to, to any extent. But anybody who who seeks major change has to grapple with the fact that criminality exists and that most people resent it, that they don't regard criminals as Robin Hoods, even though relations with them can be complex, and that therefore a desire to be protected from crime is one that that people will seek. And, you know, I think in 1919, the IRA didn't start out with this idea that they'd form a Republican police, but it became apparent very quickly that people did want there to be some form of policing. Thank you very much, Brian. That was Dr. Brian Hanley and his latest book, The Impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland, 1968-1979, Boiling Volcano, is available in paperback now from Manchester University Press. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you can, we really appreciate it if you could rate or review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks once again. My name is Cahill Brennan. On behalf of myself and my co-presenter, John Dorney from the Irish Story website, thank you very much. <laughs>